What's up, everyone? Welcome back to a new episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. I am your host, Tim. If this is your first time listening, thank you. Thank you so much. I realize there are literally thousands of podcasts out there, and to have your ears on this one is certainly a privilege and an honor, so thank you for being here. The New Evangelicals is not only a podcast. We do stuff on social media. We do Zoom groups. We have a website, thenewevangelicals.com. Check it out. We do so much work with the church that has left the building, and I'm glad that you're here. Okay, if you're someone who usually skips the uh, intro, do not. Stop. Don't hit it. There's important information you need to hear that is new. First off, this episode is with Trip Four. Again, I love Trip. Trip is brilliant. Trip is crazy. Trip is hilarious. And he is a, I guess I'm not sure if he would characterize himself this way, but I'll say he's a process theology theologian. And this episode is breaking down what the hell is process theology. I've heard a lot about it. I've heard bits and pieces about it, but I don't really know what it is. So Tripp is doing a series called Christianity in Process uh, with with a theologian kind of breaking down process theology. And guess what? You can join it. If you go to ChristianityInProcess.com, you can pay whatever you want, including zero. You can participate in the class. Trip's classes are great. I recommend them. And this episode is actually split up over two different podcasts. The first half is 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 my interview with Trip on my podcast. And the second half of our conversation is on his, uh, his podcast, Home Brewed Christianity. So if you like how this episode goes, tune in to the second half over at his podcast. Okay, I have an announcement to make. This is very, very cool. Trip, Trip 4, the man, the myth, the legend, he has graciously invited me to join him and other way more important and way more brilliant and way larger podcasts at his Theology Beer Camp. That's right. The New Evangelicals is going to Trip 4's Theology Beer Camp. Now, Tickets are not on sale yet, but they will be, and yes, you listeners will be getting a discount. So if you go to theologybeer.camp, that's right, theologybeer.camp, you can sign up to know when tickets go on sale. There's going to be some pretty big names there, like I don't know, Pete Enns and the Bible for Normal People, um, uh, Dan Koch is going to be there from You Have Permission, and I'm going to be there, which is, I mean, I don't feel worthy of being in those circles. I'm just going to have to shut up and listen the whole time because these people are so brilliant, but I am so looking forward to doing this. So I recommend uh, going to theologybeer.camp, signing up for tickets, and then when they go live, you'll get a promo code. You can put it in. You get 50 bucks off the ticket, and the ticket includes a lot of things. So look up the website, check it out, and we can go from there. That being said, thank you so much, everyone, for supporting the show. Honestly, your support means the world. It helps us get the word out. If you can share the podcast, if you can leave us a, a review or a rating, please, I beg you, I'm begging you, person listening to me, to please take 30 seconds of your day and just do it. It really helps us so much. Also, we are completely donation-based. The reason why we can do all the work we do on podcasts, on Instagram, on TikTok, on our Zoom groups, uh, Uh, And everything else is because people donate. If you're willing and able, would you consider supporting our work? We don't offer anything behind paywalls. We are paywall-free because we don't believe in in withholding help from people who really need um, tour guides, navigating them through this complex world of disentangling your faith and thinking of better ways forward in the Christian tradition. So we rely solely on donors to make it all happen. 
This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mad Priest Coffee. Let me be honest, friends, and transparent right off the bat. I freaking love this company. I've actually met Mike before. He's the owner of Mad Priest Coffee. We got lunch when he was in town randomly one day. I love everything they're doing. It's ethically sourced. It's locally owned. It's deliciously tasting. And the branding is freaking great. Friends, you can buy a tote bag that says, I kissed shit coffee goodbye. Come on. We all know what that's riffing off of, and it's freaking brilliant. On top of that, they are currently launching a Get Mad campaign to end Christian nationalism. Wait, Tim, are you telling me that you have found a local coffee brand that is ethically sourced, that treats their employees right, that is trying to end Christian nationalism, that is socially minded, and is hilarious in branding? Yes, friends, that's exactly what I'm telling you, and it gets even better. If you go to getmad.coffee and you buy anything on that webpage, and in the checkout offer code section, you put in TNE20, you will get 20% off your order. Come on, it gets no better than that. I drink this coffee, I love this coffee, I love what they're doing, it's great, great stuff. So again, that's getmad.coffee, anything on that on that webpage, you purchase it, you put in the offer code checkout section thingamahoozie, TNE20, you get 20% off your order. Go check them out. Thanks, guys, for being a sponsor of the episode and of the podcast. It is awesome. All right, everyone, without further ado, here's the first half of my interview with Trip Four talking about process theology. Recording in progress. There we go. Boom. Plus, I have my new air horn button if you get excited. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you if the air horn's going to make an appearance. Oh. Uh, so maybe it will. <laughs> God. <laughs> Why do I even ask? Oh, I have the, I don't know what the other buttons are, though. So. Oh. They're like just, a jack in the box. Yeah. Who knows? Oh. <laughs> Is this going to go in the, intro, in the actual no, final he, cut? <laughs> I don't know yet. I don't know. I don't know. You hey. got to start driving. Come on. Come on, oh, Tim. Sorry. Come on, Tim. Sorry. Right, well, Tim. I mean, <laughs> should I go into like you know, DJ road, uh, D- DJ mode? What's up, everyone? This is Tim Gorilla Beats coming at you live. Ooh, Gorilla Beast. That's my drumming name. Gorilla Beats. Yeah. Oh, Gorilla yeah. Beats. Yeah, because okay. I'm a big guy. I'm 6'4 and 270 oh, pounds. Get- and I have long arms and I hit the hell out of my drums. So uh-huh. Gorilla Beats. Nice. But anyway, well, all right. So I all guess right, I'm Gorilla take this Beats. Over. There we go. So, so trip. I mean, I don't know how this is all going to shake out, but we're here to talk about process theology, which for me, as really a white person who grew up in evangelical culture, I never even heard of the term till I met you maybe about a year ago. I think you and I first engaged about a year ago. So, so that's when I first discovered the term, but I have a lot of questions for you because I still don't know what the hell it is. Well, well, Hopefully, I will give you just enough answers that you say, oh, well, that's not complete BS. I'm intrigued. And then uh, I will lure you to to do the online process class with John Cobb coming up. That's that's my that's my goal. I'm going to I'm just going to try to make it as luscious as as, as I can. And Tim's going to be like, oh, junk. I got to go sign up. I'm going to go to Christianity Type in my name and boom. Then. You can hang out with a 97-year-old man, John Cobb, greatest living theologian. Maybe. All right. Yeah, that's that's my goal. I well, 
I did the class with Adam Clark that, that you did. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was so awesome. And I actually interviewed Adam after that, which was also amazing. So, you know, I definitely trust your, who you pick to do these things with. So, okay. So obviously I guess we decided before we started recording that, that the first half of this conversation is going on my podcast platform, which means that the audience who's listening right now probably has either A, never heard of this term before, um, B, maybe heard of you, but didn't know that you are, I guess, into process theology. And then C, they're probably coming out of evangelicalism for the first time. And what I mean is probably some form of white conservative evangelicalism. So that's your audience right now, okay? People who are probably curious about learning about more of the rooms of the Christian tradition, but just kind of coming out of that basement, that old dingy, stinky basement of John MacArthur, John Piper, and, you know, Stephen Furtick. So yeah. that's who you're talking to. All right. So my first question to you, Uh-oh. let's just start real bare bones. What is process theology? Like in a nutshell, is it a theology? Is it a philosophy? Is it found in the Christian tradition? Is it new? What is it? Well, um, I, I would say that every theology has a philosophy in it. Some, okay. sometimes you know what it is or, and sometimes you don't. Right. So, um, when you when you look at the creeds and go read the language of it, the language there is worked out in with Greek philosophy, the words that are being used and how the debates worked about how the humanity and divinity related. They're using Greek philosophy and going, here's what a person is. Here's its mind. Here's its soul. So philosophy is always being used because philosophy in general is like the, the, the way we try to give the best articulation of reality. And then theologians, we want to give the best articulation of reality. And what's at the heart of that reality? The God who who called Abraham and Sarah, the one who spoke in the flesh of Jesus. Right. So that's at the heart of Christian theology. So uh, process theologians use process philosophy, but they're also still doing the answering the big questions theologians have asked for all of church history. Like, who is God? How is God related to Jesus? Who is the spirit? What did God do in Christ? Uh, what is the church and its mission? Uh, what is the end and what do we hope for? Like, those are the big questions theologians ask. If you want to give a big account of the world, a thick, rich account with the best we can know about reality, then it mm. tends to use uh, as, as tools, philosophical reflection. Now, process theology was born uh, in, in because our understanding of reality changed a ton in the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. If you go back 200 years ago and had looked at the picture of the cosmos, it just included planets in our solar system. Now we know <laughs> we are uh, one planet in a solar system, in a galaxy, and we're in a mediocre galaxy. And there's billions of them. Um, so like, if you just took the picture that like Aquinas and John Calvin had of the world, the sun, uh, I mean, the earth was still at the center of it and everything moved out of it. Um, so even if we read the same Bible today and, but we are aware of the rich account of reality, the reality we believe God created, then it, it means something different. Like, so when we say Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, well, when earth is at the center and humanity is the centerpiece of the one planet, everything revolves around, that sounds different than, so you're saying a homeless first century Jew uh, on this one planet in this one solar system in this one galaxy among billions in the some point in 13.8 billion years is 
the eternal son, second person of the Trinity. But you know, you see, like just right. our understanding of reality changed. So what Christian theologians that are engaged process thought were ones that go, what, how do, what is the best philosophical picture of the world in light of what we know um, in, in all the different kind of scientific disciplines, understandings in history and such? And then how do we ask these questions again that the church has been asking in response to God? Um, and process theology, it, it, process philosophy was really born in the 20th century. Um, uh, it, it, and this is the time where uh, the impact of evolution is getting more clear in culture. Mm-hmm. And this is quantum. Uh, it, it, once the quantum mechanics situation shows up and all that kind of thing, once we start getting a b- bigger systems account of biology and things, people start asking real different questions. And what right. the biggest shift underneath all that is that for so long, even in early modernity, we thought the world were things the the, the base thing of is substances. And then quantum mechanics, and we can go in the science if you want, but the big shift in science was we shifted from thinking the world as substances to thinking them of events. Uh, you know, the famous line, E equal, you know, e equals MC squared. Yeah. Well, those are uh, like, what is mass equal? <laughs> Energy events. Mm. Uh, no, we still think like the most real things because of the way we experience the world is like the can or whatever. And then the, right. the, the, the physicist is like, well, kind of. <laughs> mm. uh, but there are places energy exists. There is no matter. There are no places matter exists that aren't events of energy. Um, hmm. the, our picture of the world used to be primarily like a machine. Um, and this is where right. you get, uh, you know, real mechanistic. Well, now it, it is a much more uh, or, organic vision of the world. Uh, we used to think um, uh, that things only impacted each other by being in uh, motion and making, making contact. Now there's a kind of entanglement and responsiveness. That's at the very heart of the world. I mean, I, we could go through a list of them, but like if these big shifts of understanding the world God made have taken place, then wouldn't we want to, wouldn't we want to figure out how to think theologically to try to answer the big questions the church has always been asking uh, with the tools of the, of, of a, a beautiful rich account. Um, and so process theologians uh, have engaged um, those big historic questions using um, a, a philosophy that was really birthed out of a lot of the new, um, the, the biggest turns in science in the 20th century. And then okay. it has continued to develop. So, See, this is already very foreign to my own categories as a Christian, right? Because being steeped in evangelical culture, I really was just taught that like the Bible has all the answers. We really don't trust science unless it maybe fits a certain few agenda points, you know, and that ultimately we want to not be a part of the world. And that really we want to trust the Bible over man is kind of like how we're taught about it. But but what you're saying is that and I, tell me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing you say is that process theology is actually willing to engage all these different things. And it also realizes that all of humanity exists in different contexts and that shapes how they think. And so being now in the 21st century, right, or the 20th century, we've had massive shifts in how the human brain, how the human consciousness sees itself, sees the world based on on better science, better data, et cetera. And process theology is willing to adapt with that to try and make sense of new data points that we have that maybe, you know, Paul didn't have or Aquinas didn't have or Augustine didn't have. Am I am I up on the right path here? Yeah, yeah. And and, and so um, and part of it, I mean, I think we all do this. Part of it is when you realize it's happening, right? So, mm. um, 
one one of the things that regularly comes up in your work, right, is you are sitting there yeah. and you see these people you used to read their books, and then right. all of a sudden they're like, "I love Donald Trump," <laughs> and you know right. what brings people to the Lord? Really poor worship music on an airplane. And you just start going through all these things. But right. in their world, that, that makes perfect sense to them. And they're just following it along. And then you're sitting there going, no, 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 no. See, you were singing about Jesus. And you thought that somehow supports kind of like Christian supremacy, American militarism, uh, mm. ignorance around systemic racism, uh, denial of, of, of the impending climate collapse. Like right. you think you're doing the right thing, but what you really don't see is that there's this whole other agenda getting itself done in you. Right? It, mm. It's a yeah. when if you're asking questions and leaving that evangelical bubble, what part of what you're realizing is that there were a lot of things that were speaking with the voice of God. Not yes. just like the beautiful parts that you you hope to to, to not have uh, squeezed out, right? Like you still right. want to encounter the ultimate reality through Jesus in ways that you are known and loved and called to serve and care and seek justice. But you're like, but that also doesn't include, I don't know, purity culture and white supremacy. <laughs> and so the, um, the right. when we encounter things in context, um, context is always getting smuggled in. The, yeah. the biggest one that sh the, the first time for me, um, I was a Baptist preacher's kid in the South, was 9-11. I, mm. I had just started college. We had 9-11 happens. And I remember I was at a you know, Baptist school. Everyone, we had to go to mandatory chapel mm. because that's what Jesus would do is force <laughs> college kids to show up and get their attendance taken to listen to bad sermons. Right. But I remember... You know, the second plane hits and you realize this wasn't like a, a human error. Stuff's right. going down. We had to go right. to chapel. Come out. What are the Christians doing? Oh, we just had a prayer service. Now we have to do more prayer services to out Jesus each other because mm. you had a, it's a good time to grow your uh, student group. And you had a different group on each night that met, you know, with a slightly different theology. And you'd hate mm. for Monday night Bible study to grow because they liked R.C. Sproul and he's wrong. And anyway, so, you <laughs> well, know, that is objectively true. We all know yeah. that. You know? <laughs> and, and I remember sitting there and people are praying um, and my buddy who my roommate leaves, he's all upset. I go following after him. He said, there's only one thing Jesus told us to do on a day like this is pray for your enemies and no one's done it. Mm. And I was like, oh yeah, that's actually correct. And I was not what I was thinking. And then what did the church go on to do? Right? Like it, it became the biggest supporters of the war in Iraq and Iraq had nothing to do with nine 11. Um, right. And uh, it, it just, it then the Islamophobia and stuff that took place. I, I, it was at that point I realized all these people that were connected to me growing up, uh, like half of them were in a different religion than I was, and I didn't know mm -hmm. it. And right. I'm like, huh? Right. And to me, it was that question of power. Like, do you really think um, we're being faithful to one that bore a cross by building them for all of our enemies, and right. and then praying and blessing everyone to do this? Right. And and like when I realized that. And this is not surprising, right? The, the two big things running through the Hebrew scriptures that God gets pissed about, idolatry and screwing the poor. And, <laughs> and there's nothing more idolatrous than thinking <laughs> that, right. that Jesus is on the side of preemptive strikes to a country that was unrelated to the previous day. Anyway, so I say That's that right. just to go, whoa, yeah. 
And I think a lot of people, uh, once that happens, then you have to start asking yourself, like, what is being smuggled in? And why is it that they just will, will pull the authority card anytime you ask a good question? Like, oh, oh you're not being biblical, Tim. Tim, right. you're leading people astray. Um, <laughs> Were you in my DMs today? I mean, <laughs> well, I, if I send you things in DM, it's a little different. I, I, I only pray for you without telling you. You know. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> like, um, okay, I, I want to. This actually brings up a, a great segue into a question I wanted to ask. Again, I, I, I'm just gonna. I'm playing the part of, of really me, but also of the audience. A big question people are going to ask is, how does process theology in the Bible intersect? How does process theology view the Bible? Obviously, a lot of us grew up in more Reformed traditions, which, of course, has no cultural context. It's just being biblical, right? Duh, That's kind of what we're obvi. told. Avi, right? Um, so, so how does process theology handle the Bible? Is process theology, forgive the word, but is it, quote unquote, biblical? Like, like what do you mm. do with that, right? How does it intersect? Okay, so, um, uh, well, I'll just say, like... Uh, uh, any, if you look at the history of the church, a whole bunch of different philosophies have been used. So there are a bunch of different theologians who use Platonism. Augustine, who's kind of like the most influential thinker uh, after Paul right. for Christianity, right. was a Platonist. Um, but so were some heretics. Oh, like Plato, the philosopher Plato. Yeah, but like, what, what, what is that? What does that believe? Like, what, what is the tenet of that? I don't oh, okay. So, well, so, so. Plato's picture of the divine is one where change is less than perfect. And so whatever is perfect doesn't change because it would have to change from better or worse. Um, and so obviously God doesn't change. So God's simple. Wouldn't that, and if that's what we mean by divine simplicity. And since God's simple, that would mean uh, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see God repents um, or God changes God's mind or right. God goes to the prophet and says, hey, could you holler at Israel right now? See, they're charging interest to homeless people while they're at church. Have you considered this to be wrong? Now, if they don't shape up, uh, they're going to go into exile. But if they listen, look, all you have to do is repent. Like I literally made a covenant with you so the world would see my character reflected in the people of God. And then they start getting some blessings going. And what do they do? Start screwing over the poor people. You screw over right. the poor people. You practice idolatry. Time out. Right. They don't listen <laughs> right. usually. Um, right. <laughs> so this is, but like underneath the whole narrative of scripture. And if you look at the story of Israel is a God who covenants with the people and is so invested in relating those people that their relation with God actually changes how God relates. And we all know this because we have loving relationships who you love changes how, what that love looks like. Um, and you love your child and you love your partner and what, what that, how that love demonstrates itself varies. There's only one of them. You wipe their butt. And that's not because there's a deficit of love. It's just the context is different. So, so I say that because when Augustine and plenty of the Platonists, uh, some were heretics, some are Orthodox, or the Aristotelians like Thomas Aquinas, when they read passages where it sounds like um, the world is moving and it's in God's in relationship with it as it is, calling it to be what it can, and then respond to the next, they read and go, well, it sounds like that, but we all know. God's perfect. God doesn't change. God's immutable and impassable. God can't suffer. So it's not real. Um, so one of the things I always say, if you think process, right, your people can use process philosophy and be a, a whole host on the spectrum of left to right theologically mm. and that kind of thing. 
Um, you know, more mainline Protestants have historically uh, done it, and that means they're going to be more liberal, especially if you're an evangelical. But there's lots of open open theologians and such that are evangelical and use it. They just don't tell most of their friends because they'll get in trouble. <laughs> um, but it, it, I say that because take uh, Jeremiah 18. Um, that's the potter passage. Most people know mm. it because there's been a number of worship songs that use yes. I'm the potter and the clay thing. right? And that's a beautiful yes. picture. Jeremiah sees a potter, goes to the potter's house, and there, the clay falls over as it's spinning, right? And it's in this motion, it falls over. And then the potter reworks it. And what does the, what does, uh, the prophet say? Or God says to the prophet, look, this is what Israel's like. It fell over. But the clay, if it cooperates with the guidance and, re- and follows the flow of the artist's hand, what has fallen over can be rebuilt into something beautiful. But if the clay doesn't actually trust the guidance of the craftsman, it gets tossed in the fire. Go tell Israel where they want to do, what they're going to do, right? So um, a, a process theologian, any open and relational theologian reads that and goes, well, the prophet is telling Israel that God's deepest desires and values and purposes are ones where they respond faithfully to God. And if they don't respond, here's the natural consequences of saying no to the invitation of their loving deity. They falls over, it becomes useless. And then right. what happens? It's useless. It doesn't get formed into something beautiful. And the invitation, right, is to respond. Then you, um, you go back and you look and, oh, look at this. Augustine thought, uh, well, God is simple. So God already knew that they weren't going to respond because God ordained the whole thing. Um, so while uh, God's character is one that response is possible, God could not change. And so it's not genuine. Then Calvin reads Augustine talk about it because Calvin basically is an Augustinian dialing up certain knobs of, right. Uh, lower anthropology, uh, more confident that God created people for eternal damnation. Like all these little bits in Augustine, Calvin, right. like, he's like, why are you only going to turn that up to seven? Let's turn it up to 11. And then, <laughs> anyway. Uh, Romans it, nine. Yeah. He's like, yes. So, uh, so then Calvin, go, Calvin just straight up says, look, I know you start reading the Bible a lot, fellas. Uh, that it's it sounds like God's in a relationship with Israel, but it's not real. It's called baby talk. You know when you see your baby and you bend over, you go, oh goo 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 goo, oh no 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 no. That is what the scriptures are doing when it sounds like God's in a loving relationship and is impacted, suffers, celebrates, and changes based on Israel's response. That's what Calvin's, that's what he says the passage is like. And he does it for a bunch of them. Uh, uh, when I was an undergrad, I chronicled how many different times he says what the actual text in scripture is, is not accurate because God can't change. And that's what he just mm. says it all the time. But the reason is because true perfection demands this simplicity, immutability, immutability, impassibility. So uh, God can't change. God's simple. Uh, God can't suffer. And so if you know that's the truth, then the right way to read the text is so that God can't change, God can't suffer, and God is in complete control and determines everything. The right. thing is, th- that's not what the text says. So I, I always say, I, I say it when you ask the Bible question, because yeah. I was a Baptist preacher's kid. I found process and thought this philosophy actually makes more sense of the Bible because I actually read it a lot. The, the picture of God in scripture 
is, is someone who chooses to in covenant with people it, to do what? Hmm. Bless to be blessed. Right. And the identity of the people of God is someone who is responding to the nature and character of God and making it present so that the people in, in the, like when you, Israel's functioning well, then what happens? Uh, the, 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 the royal arm and the cultic arm, the ones that run the temple and such, are working in harmony such that the people know their identity before Yahweh and then live it out in the world. And when they do that, it's not just them that are blessed, but all their neighbors, because they're what? A light unto the world. Why? Because they're responding faithfully to God. And the whole dynamic picture of Israel, uh, Israel and God's relationship is relational. You get to the New Testament. It seems to be <laughs> the kind of thing Jesus is inviting people into, right? Like right. If you, the kingdom of God and the language of Jesus. Uh, so the the part of, I, I give those examples just to go. We all know these spots in Scripture where it's very clear God is get inviting. Some people say yes, some people say no, and that sets up the next moment. Um, if your philosophy that is shaping your theology, whether you know it or not, tells you that means God's not perfect, if God changes or suffers then you already know how to read the Bible correctly. Um, like you, there are people that learned how to read the Bible correctly and thought um, chattel slavery was cool. There are people that learned how to read the Bible. Like, just think of all the things that now we're like, how did that happen? We have a, you know who, who tells the gospel first? A woman. That's mm -hmm. who says he is risen. And we're like 2000 years in and only half the denominations let women preach. So right. like, it's not like we can't enculturate and assume this is the ideal and project it on scripture. So for me, finding process philosophy meant like, here's a philosophical picture of God and the world relating. It engages science. It looks at the cosmological picture in an accurate way and things, but it also resonates with, uh, with that relational open vision that's in so much of scripture. When you say, um, open vision do you mean like because again okay so i was just taught that you know I, I taught that god was all the omnis omnipresent omniscient you know omnipotent he's all powerful yeah, yeah. knowing you know so does process theology see god as this all-powerful all-knowing all ultimately i guess sovereign or in control being um or does it does this process theology see god in a different way um well yes in a different way uh, but okay so but we could go through each one. So when it goes to presence, um, the God, a process theology takes that line in Paul uh, when he's preaching the, the Aragopolis in Acts. Seriously, like God is where we live, move, and have our being. Mm. That And process is a kind of panentheism, uh, which means all the world is within God and God is more than the world, but God and the world are always uh, – they're they're mutually participating in the world. So you mm. you exist in God and God's more than the world. So you don't have this picture that isn't biblical, but it is dominates a lot of uh, modern versions of uh, Protestantism that for God to be present and do anything, God has to intervene in the natural world. That's mm. not a biblical thing. It's not even from the like uh Martin Luther didn't think that. Um, but after the early enlightenment, <clears throat> uh, part one of the early ways in response to science that Christian theologians argued for the existence of God as science became more clear was to argue that the world all functions on these natural laws where science 
make can wrestle with and understand. And that's because God created a world that functions really well. And and God doesn't have to do anything because it just it works. And then occasionally God intervenes and does things, but mm, otherwise it right. works well. But see, like once you argue that way, you've evacuated God from the world. Um, but if you read through scripture, uh, God is very present and active and involved. Um, and so God doesn't have to intervene to show up for process people um, and other panentheists, someone like Jürgen Moltmann, or, I mean, there's plenty of others. Uh, the, uh, God, g- the God is always present and active in each moment. Um, mm. <clears throat> but that means God's, God's power isn't uh, either passive, right? And it's running on some watch God set up and left or intervening right. and determining. Um, mm. <clears throat> every moment God and the world are in relationship uh, and God calls lures um, uh, in. Uh, I, I've used the language of self-investment. God gives God's self to the world each moment. And the, the creature, depending on what it's inheriting from the past, what it understands and is available to it, what possibilities are before it, is called to make real, make exist, give flesh to uh, God's desire. Um, <clears throat> and that is... That means God is not in complete control of everything, or any, uh, it, but that God is involved in each thing. Mother's Day is coming, and if you don't get mom the perfect gift, she won't be angry, just disappointed. So go with drinks from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Send favorites near, bar, or to wherever the moms in your life are. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get the best drinks to the best moms and plenty of time for Mother's Day. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. Um, so, wait, wait. I knew it, Trip. I knew you were a heretic this whole time. Okay. Did you just say that God isn't fully in control? Definitely Trip, not. What kind of God is that? That's a weak God. Don't you know how these reformed theologians, how they talk about the uh, all powerful nature of God who can, can squash you like the ant that you are because this God is all powerful and all in control. So help me understand here. Okay. And trips heretical mind. I'm sure you're a Marxist too. You're socialist, commie, liberal. Oh, I don't know. You know, going to help me all around, <laughs> but, but, but for real, I mean, again, I'm just thinking about the audience. I'm thinking about me, you know, once I hear that, like, even still, I'm like, Ooh, I don't know. Trip. Like, like God's not fully like in control of things. Like I was taught that he's completely, I mean, John Piper, for example, this is a good yeah. example of this. John Piper, you know, he, his theology, I've read his books. I've seen what he, he says it's comforting to know that God has ordained the rape of people because there's a purpose behind it. Right. I mean, he says that I can pull you the quote. Oh, I you know. know. He says that, it's you just... know, that thank God that, 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 that God has ordained and orchestrated and decreed such things to happen because even though that doesn't make him the author of evil debatable, um, you know, even though it doesn't make him the author of evil, there's now a purpose to the suffering. So John Piper has the opposite view, but what would you say to something like that through a process theology lens? Well, I would just say that, uh, the God John Piper believes in is not worthy of worship and is nothing like Jesus. Jesus Christ. No, I mean, <laughs> like I, just, I appreciate the candidates. I mean, I'm going to, it's just, I, I appreciate the bluntness. Here, Continue. put it this way. If you're a Christian, I feel like minimal viable theology 
Like yeah. this is just if you're a Christian, so I, he can decide for himself which religions he's in. But if you're a Christian, God should at least be as nice as Jesus. Right. And if you uh, have read the New Testament, I don't think that's how Jesus rolled. Like you don't see him walking around um, and <laughs> and going, you know what? I'm really glad the rocks fell off the temple and killed these people. Um, it, that way, that way God could, uh, God has a plan and a purpose for like, that's not even his response when he gets those kind of questions. Um, but you know, underneath that whole thing is a rather monstrous idea that an omni God is in complete control of everything, creates a world, uh, that will have sin in it. And then says, uh, for the sin of the omnipotent God in complete control, God has makes a world that has sin in it. Now you are going to suffer for your sin that you weren't even ultimately responsible for. And no. two thirds of you, if you, but it, look, if God only saves one, you're lucky, but there's going to be a lot of you that were created by a holy loving God for eternal conscious torment. So to demonstrate how holy and loving God is like what we it's, it's an, like, why do you want to have a theology where you have to apologize that the one Jesus called Abba is an asshole? That's like, and it's not even like, it's not good. It's not good news. Right. So it's right. a monstrous idea and it's yeah. not biblical. But that that vision of of omnipotence, I think, and Whitehead, the one of the big process philosophers, has this beautiful passage. Well, beautiful if you read philosophy. I would not suggest mm. someone just go pick it up. But he, he, he says that... Uh, you know, there's this in the history of of the West. There's been these three battling pictures of God. You have God as um, the moral judge and principle. Uh, God is ruling king, and God is like the ground of being this big metaphysical principle. Uh, and and he gives critiques of all of them. He says, but there's a fourth vision. He calls it the Galilean vision. Hint, mm. hint. Jesus was from Galilee, and and then he gives this depiction of the ministry of Jesus and the vision of the kingdom of God and and goes, it is it's a very different kind of vision because it doesn't seek to control, but as much to invite. It isn't it is a bit oblivious as to morals. It seeks compassion and fi- in the fine things. Anyway, it gives this like beautiful picture of like mm. what the love of Jesus looks like. Um, and, and I think and then he goes. And it was compelling, you know, and it, it, it births, in a sense, the Christian church out of this vision. And then yeah. Caesar's lawyers edited it. Hmm. And, and so what happened in the church was you have this picture of the one who dies cross dead is the image of divine love and victory. And then the one that built the cross and the soldiers that nailed him, lawyers, got in charge and said, well, like, can my editors help you? Um, you want to know what real perfection is? Divine simplicity. I have some Plato footnotes for you. And that means God can't change. God can't suffer. Um, and obviously God has perfect power. And you know what perfect power is? Perfect power is top down control. Mm. And just, you go through all the ways that our image of God contrasts with the actual picture of God. If I don't know, you believe Jesus is the image of the invisible God or the word of God made flesh. Like once you really believe those things, then yeah. your picture of God, God can't, it could be at least as nice as Jesus. 
And there's nothing in like the mouth of Jesus where he like shows up and goes, I'm just so glad my dad's in control of all the rapes. Right. Like where the hell does that come from? Right. Now, but here's the part of it that I think is important to get pain and suffering and trauma suck. And we want to know there's meaning in it. Mm. And there, it is powerful for someone to believe and think that, that some, there was some purpose to the suffering. Hmm. And if you believe that God cannot suffer with you, then the only way for God to be present is to have been in charge or permitted it. Hmm. But if you believe that God is a fellow sufferer who understands, who chose solidarity with all finite creatures through the cross, then in every event of suffering, the cross of Jesus and every cross in history, we can be confident that God knows the suffering and participates in it with us. And God will work from it for the good. But you could never, if Jesus is shaping your vision of God, call the violation good. God works for the good in all things. God doesn't call horrible things good just because Mm. God has a good stamp. And it's, right. a, it, it's a shift of perspectives. But I, I do think it's important. And look, I grew up a Calvinist, so I know how this works. Same. <laughs> um, Same. They, I, I, read, I read Spurgeon sermons uh, for devotionals. Um, and and I, I had three different editions of the Institutes. I remember when people complained about Calvinism, saying, no, that's hyper-Calvinism. Right. And, yeah. Okay. So the, I, understand, I understand. And I, to me, it was being in enough situations and then getting to a space where I realized that the, the, that I needed God present in the shit of life. And if I thought the God's perfection meant God couldn't share in it in suffer with us and then God needed to be in control. And so it, that response makes sense. I just, mm. it was, it was realizing and this is something Bonhoeffer says in <clears throat> about that only a suffering God can help. Um, if you're going to be honest about the brokenness and ugliness in the world, because otherwise you're going to push God, at <clears throat> the experience of the world pushes God further and further out of our vision. Hmm. And I think there's a, um, for me, there's the, the initial response or, or interest in process emotionally and how it made sense was it, it, it gave me language for thinking through my own experience with God in, in my life of faith. It gave me language that also enabled me to wrestle with all the big questions. Um, you know, because I'm like the kind of nerd that gets really into philosophy, science and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And I found so often my more conservative evangelical friends engage in those topics uh, in a defensive stance. Yeah. And I just don't think someone who, <laughs> I don't think a monotheist should be intimidated by whatever truth ends up being. It's because God is, if you're, if you're a monotheist, then the source of all things involves God. And, and wow. that, that defensiveness stance towards it, and what is it? What if what you're protecting isn't 
the living and life-giving God that was alive in the history of Israel, present in the life of Jesus and in the body of Christ today. Well, if you're not defending that, you're defending um, some vision or account of it that might have been the best account in Geneva at some point. Mm. But yeah, I, I mean, I joke about homebrewed Christianity, you know, because uh, uh, most Christians treat um, like uh, they act, they have like shitty beer. And they call that beer. It's like if the only thing you ever drank was Pabst Blue Ribbon, <laughs> and then you didn't like beer, I would say it reasonable. It's a good. <laughs> I understand. And and they're they're like, what do you mean? This isn't a great example of beer. You're like, no, it's horrible. You should try like actual good beer. They're like, no, mm. it won an award. Uh, it's got a blue ribbon. I, and I think that sometimes people think the only version of Christianity, especially if you grow up in a conservative evangelical environment, is that one. And so then they walk around. They're like, I, I love beer. And you're like, yeah, what kind of IPAs? You're like, nope, that's not even beer. There's only one kind. It's the Blue Ribbon Award winner. <laughs> and and then, so I grew up thinking that like real Christianity was the one that was was brewed in Geneva uh, with, with Calvin and company. And I'm like, yeah, I won an right. award a long time ago. I'm not sure it tastes right. good now. Uh, and there's actually like tons of thing, tons of flavors in that you can, you know, if you if you go to a craft brewery and you get good ones, you're like, wow, there's tons of different styles and ingredients, and then different parts of the world have different traditions. Then they brew things, and now people are bringing together different traditions and creating things that blow your palate up, and it's delicious. And you're like, why would you want to do that uh, when you could have Pabst Blue Ribbon, Tim? You know, so I <laughs> yeah, I, I give yeah. I give that as an example to go like. Sometimes people defend uh, sometimes people defend the system because they think the entirety of that system has to be defended to preserve their encounter with God. And I came to think I can't keep preserving this vision of God when the character of God's not as loving as Jesus. Uh, and so discovering a richer depth of the church. Uh, engaging and kind of questing philosophically and scientifically and things opened me up to a host of different options. You find out the church is packed full of different answers to different questions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what, you know, I think that's why these kinds of conversations for my context are so important because again, so many of us for 10, 20, 30 plus years really were just brought up being told like, this is it. Like, here is the gospel. Here is what the Bible says. And this is the only way, right? I mean, here is, here is that, that, <laughs> that beer, right? And we go, okay, this is all, this is the only kind of beer that is allowed that, that in any other kind of beer is, is wrong. It's false. And I think a lot of people who are coming out of this, I think they're kind of angry because they kind of feel misled in a lot of ways, but they're also like there's also so, something still so beautiful about the Jesus that they've encountered in these spaces in a lot of ways too. Right. And a lot of people, like you said, I think so well, we're thinking about like, well, like if the God that I'm supposed to be worshiping, isn't as nice as Jesus, like you said, what, what, who am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? And so I, I think it's important because, you know, the analogy we use a lot is, is the house analogy. You know, we're coming out of the basement of evangelicalism into the house of Christian thought. And honestly, I didn't know that all these rooms existed until like two years ago. And so it's important. So my, my, my next question about process theology is, is how, how does 
how does God see the future in process theology? Is God aware of what's coming? Is, is he all knowing in the way that I, you know, again, I was taught that God's yeah, yeah. all knowing he, he sees what's coming. How does that work in process theology is because you mentioned a lot of like this, this relational thing where God and the world are in relationship together, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, I guess, feeding off of each other. Obviously we're all in, in God, but God's also in the world. Um, so when it comes to like, how time is unfolding, mm-hmm. especially how, how we think about it in our context. How does how does the 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 how does the theology of process theology kind of you know um, answer that question about God and, and, and them being all knowing or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I I'll, some people see God's relationship to time like a human's relationship to a book, um, and yes. so you you have a book and you've it's done. The book's done, but as you're reading it, your finger's going over different lines, and that's where you are in the story, but the story's written, and the reader and the author are external to the story itself, so it's settled. Right, right. And then if if God is the author and the reader of the book, you know, we're, you know, we're experiencing the cursor, in a sense, going through it, but it's not, it's already written and settled, because God is outside of time. Right, and if you think That's back right. to mentioning earlier that not the Hebrew notions of perfection, but Greek ones like Plato's uh, and Aristotle's picture of perfection, part of divine simplicity that God can't change meant that God's eternality is external to time, right? Because time things change. We we experience that. That's so right. Yes. The the book analogy is one vision um, that uh, is the dominant one from you know for most of the middle uh middle ages into early modern times until you re- and really until science points out like actually you the our planet and our species are parts of a giant history of ongoing change mm-hmm. right once you deal with big bang cosmology and evolution then it's really hard to imagine um you know uh, that you're 6,000 years into something that was created and everything was already fixed and set when, it, you know, when they showed up at the end of six days. Um, <laughs> right, right. So right. Uh, one, another picture of time uh, is, is uh, any of the kind of open theologies process being one of them. And that would say that God, it's a flashlight image um, that God knows everything that can be known, which means, and, and because God actually experiences every moment, um, God knows it internally. God knows the past completely, the present as it's becoming, and the future as possibilities. So if you think of a flashlight, um, God knows everything's happened and is sitting with a flashlight shining forward. And so the the possibilities for the next moment are almost settled, as they're, if you think of how fast an event might be. Um, but what, <clears throat> what the situation's going to be uh, five years from now is different than a thousand years from now and vice versa. But a flashlight, right, is the kind of the guidance. So there's more clarity soon and, and less as it gets over. The, if you then go, how is God sovereign? How is God, uh, uh, is, uh, how is God almighty and in control and all these kinds of things? It's easy to answer that in one way if it's a book because you go, well, whose name's on the book? Right. It says, right. It says Jesus is daddy. So, you know, you want to be his friend, right? Or else, <laughs> you just wait till the end. 
Um, right. Well, I mean, I was going to say, you know, even even our worship songs are so centered around. We know how the story ends, right? We know ultimately God wins and the devil's defeated. The story has been written, and we're just kind of acting out this play. I mean, that is a very dominant evangelical yeah. thought in 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 our culture. Well, it, and see, but the part of the security in the book analogy is that the author of things is external to it. Why? Because yeah. what does it mean to be perfect? It is not the change in all these kinds of things. I think that a cruciform vision, a cruciform picture of, of our confidence is not that God's apart from things, but that God's actually fully participating in it. So the at flashlight imagery, I, I think is helpful because if you're trying to make sense of life and you're, and you're on a journey, what do you want? The God of infinite love present with you, beside you, holding the flashlight. And so what do we know is going to be the case in every moment of becoming? That the infinite God of love comes and meets the world and each creature exactly where they are, having experienced the previous moment, and is with us and for us and before us as we go into the next moment. And then no matter what happens, God's there. You could say that the love of God in Christ Jesus finds us in each and every moment, whether you get all the way down to Sheol or the seventh heaven. Um, but each moment, the one who's with you is the one Jesus called Abba. And so the flashlight is on and who's holding your hand is what you, where the confidence comes from. Not because his dad wrote a book and <laughs> it's settled mm. on the outside. Um, mm. And so it, 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 yeah, those are different, but you tell me which one actually makes more sense of the Bible. Because if you just read it, what is the main image of God's activity in the Hebrew scripture? Covenants. Mm. What, who is God in scripture, uh, in, in, in the covenant? What kind, what is the God? God is a faithful God. Mm-hmm. Hesed, ever faithful God. Right. In, in the New Testament, what is the image of divine activity that dominates? It's, it's, you got investing in, you got the incarnation, you got kenosis, you got all these images of not just God having chosen a people, but God has chosen the world by, by becoming flesh. Hmm. All, both of those images are the, that dominate scripture are ones where, where we know who God is because God's chosen to care and invest in our history and not leave us, whether we're in exile and hears us if we're enslaved and has mm. chose us in the flesh of Christ. Like mm. the, it, it, so I, I say all that because I, I know why some people are really attracted to thinking it's a settled book and things. I'm just thinking that the witness of scripture uh is at least equally affirming of what you trust is that the Lord your God is one. Hmm. Or when you pray, pray this way. And what is the very heart of the Lord's prayer? The that what heaven is in complete control. Earth is where the issue is, and we're being called in to participating it. That it yeah. comes and like that anyway. So the those when we talk about a, a pro or any open theology process being one of them about God's knowledge, God knows everything that can be known, but what can't be known are the genuine re- decisions of creatures in dialogue in response to God moment to moment. And that's because what does love require? Freedom. Love really requires freedom. If you, 
if you can, thinking of the R.C. Sproul line, I remember, uh, you know, about a rape. Um, it, the the very same act that is a violent one that does not involve respect, reciprocity, and freedom. Uh, the very same act can be a beautiful thing when it's done in freedom. And we just think of like when you when you make eye contact and make love to your partner, hmm. these same motions are taking place. But what has become present is that you're both risking the vulnerability to each other. You have reciprocal love and respect, and it is a mutual re- refilling relationship. Mm-hmm. It that actually requires the the growth of intimacy over time, and it requires the freedom of genuine love. And mm. love involves that risky freedom. Yeah. And and you hear it throughout scripture. The Psalms are full of when ex- Israel experiences feeling left behind or ignored by God and they're crying out, like, do you hear me? And then there are other times they, they, they retell all the times God's faithful and goes, I know you're faithful. Help me find you in the present. Like all these stories, the, the language of scripture seems to me that it over, over and over says there's a living and life-giving God who knows your name, knows your face and cares, is invested in your life. And the more you come to trust the way God sees you, the more God's character will flow out of your actions and the way you treat your neighbors and your enemies. And that involves a kind of freedom, a reciprocity. Um, and six, and when you love well, then you don't have absolute power. Like the difference between a, a successful parent and a shitty parent is if like take school. If you do, you know you're doing a good job when you've actually cultivated the character within your children to treat their neighbors respectfully at school, listen to their teacher, and lo- love learning. Um. And sometimes that that involves a whole process of, but you could show up and walk them around to make sure they don't disrespect, threaten them, beat them, and force them to do whatever you want. And you, they, they could have done the exact same thing in the day. Right. <clears throat> but which is the more powerful parent? The most powerful right. one or cultivates a relationship where their deepest character, the character they have they want to give to their children, becomes instilled in them. And then what happens? They actually live it out. Hmm. So what is it? What's God's relationship to Abraham and Sarah calls relates to them for what purpose to have a people who gets to know God and their God's character is revealed in them. How do we know who God is as Christians? We tell a story about Jesus. Why? Because the word that always has been spoken was made flesh in Jesus. What did that mean? It means he was the image of the invisible God. He was faithful to God and it became flesh like these images of of covenant, the images of Christ. These are relational images and Hmm. and. And I, and I think that part of where the trust comes from, uh, it, it, part of where f- what faith involves is saying, I'm engaging the world and living in the world, knowing that, that wherever I go, I'm going with the one Jesus called Abba, or mm. in, in the Hebrew scriptures, El Shaddai, uh, as uh, holding the flashlight, the one who has covenant, faithful love, um, it, but but it is a shift. I'm just not sure it's one away from scripture. <laughs> I, mm, I it, mm. but it, but it is different, right? If that, like, I, I want to no, affirm it, the difference, but I don't think it's like a shift away from biblical Christianity. So what's interesting is is that it definitely is for me. It's a huge shift, but 
I've also, this is kind of a deeper thought that I've been wrestling through for a little while now, but I've also come to realize that I've actually been taught biblical illiteracy in my evangelical upbringing. I've just been taught how to weave together a select few verses to make their theology fit. Does that make sense? So like, it's not like I have like intense Bible classes in my evangelical church. I just had a pastor who was really good at taking verse A, verse B, verse C, verse D from like, you know, Genesis, maybe somewhere in Jeremiah, then somewhere in Romans, and then weaving, therefore these verses prove this narrative, right? So I think for a lot of us, honestly, I, I, I can speak for myself. I'm almost, when I read the Bible now, I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this, you know? Cause like, I, I don't trust to interpret what I'm reading accurately because I already have like this horrible taste in my mouth from what I've been taught, which is really just like, here's a few verses, here's Romans nine, here's Ephesians, this, you know, here's, here's a verse in revelation, boom, you know, determinism and eternal classes torment. The Bible said it, that settles it the end. So I, I think it's, I think a lot of people who are in these spaces now for the first time are like, yeah, like, thank you for at least making the argument that actually having this view is not forsaking even the, you know, the, the Bible in any way, shape or form. But I also would argue that, you know, in your case, if you just read the Bible, you might actually see more evidence for a relational type of, you know, uh, theology that maybe we've really disregarded because of how popular and how effective that more evangelical, I guess, more reformed tradition really is, right? I mean, they really have the branding, they have the the commentators, they have the speakers, they have the books. Uh, and so a lot of people just don't know of any other way to conceptualize the Bible other than, okay, here's the four verses in my head. This is what the Bible says. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it does. And I think one thing to remember is the Bible doesn't speak with one clear, distinct voice the whole time. Hmm. Right. So it's 66 books. To, well, it depends on what part of the church you're in. <laughs> right. But, right. you know, um, the so so part if the authority of Scripture is that you believe it all lines up to a set of answers that are all like like a, a, a like a row of pearls on a pearl necklace and it's strung together through the the, the thin line of biblical authority, then. You're reading it and you realize there are different answers to the same question in scripture. Like, why do bad things happen to good people? Like wisdom literature canonizes multiple answers. Like Proverbs right. is like, you do if you do what God wants, you're blessed. If you do bad things, you get cursed. And so you should learn these things. And then uh, Job is like, that didn't work. And, you know, and there's a lot of ways of <laughs> right, understanding right. Job, but the friends right. who are wrong in the story are quoting the Bible to Job. Um, right. And you, in the end, you can decide there's, you know, lots of interpretation. on it. But then you get to, to uh, you get to uh, Ecclesiastes and apparently the smartest guy in the world's like, this, this sucks, dude. Meaningless. Yeah. It's, I got, I got nothing, but uh, I, I think you shit. should get tipsy tonight <laughs> and, and have good sex with your wife. Right. Um, don't be a right. horrible parent. You might need them later. But if you lower <laughs> expectations, <laughs> oh yeah, thank you God. You know, so right. like, so I, right. I say that just to go. Um, w but underneath that, what does that mean? That we actually canonized a community who knows that if you if you trust that the source of all existence is one good God, and then you look at the world's reality, you're gonna ask the why question. Right. And so what was canon? Lamentations. I mean, you could go, there's even more answers in there. But 
what's been canonized is that it is holy to wrestle for the goodness of God in the face of an ugly world. Right. And, and it is good to do it. And you have an ally in scripture. Uh, and honestly, the people that quote Proverbs are right 90% of the time. And the 10% is what drives me up a wall. Uh, and I get annoyed when they're right because I don't like that answer. Anyway, so, you know, so I, I, I didn't want anyone to think like Tripp is saying the process vision is the perfect biblical one. I just think it's it's definitely at least as accurate, probably more, I'm very confident on that, than like the dominant reformed answer to these things. Um, <clears throat> but you know, the other part about the Bible thing is sure, there's their language matters. And so there's... So when it goes to the omnipotence thing, like Almighty's not in the Bible, and now it is. It's the most used name for God in prayers in most most denominations worship, and that is like a weird translation problem that huh. has happened for you. So like <clears throat> Almighty is El Shaddai in Hebrew. Um, it's one of the few actual names of God in Hebrew. Like this is God's name, right? Right. Um, it is originally in Hebrew. It gets translated in when they made the Greek uh, translation, the, the Septuagint um, translation, which is the one Paul wrote, read and quotes from that translation translates the name El Shaddai into a bunch of different words. So one name, proper name for God gets translated into different words in the Greek translation, which is the one that lots of people were using in the time of Jesus. Paul quotes it because you can tell he would be quoting scripture really wrong if he read the Hebrew, but it's right if he's quoting the Septuagint. Um, <laughs> right. So Jerome is translating the Greek Septuagint, which is a translation of Hebrew, into Latin, which is the official translation for the church for a long time, the Catholic mm -hmm. translation. And he decides, look, El Shaddai is a proper name. We need it to use the same word the whole time. Otherwise, people are not going to know this is a name of God. And I'm like, right. correct, Jerome. And then he goes, so every time you see the name El Shaddai, we need to put use the same word. And he looks at all the different translations in Latin. Uh, for Latin of the Greek words, and he and he picks cosmocator. That's only only in the Septuagint. It's only used in Job, and mm. cosmocator in Latin is what we call Almighty. Mm. And you say, well, see, trip it is biblical. Well, ask your rabbi neighbor, what does El Shaddai mean in Hebrew? And there's two answers. One, mountain refuge. Not surprising if you're Israel. That you're that one of the proper names of God's mountain refuge, and the other is well-breasted one. Um, again, if you're uh, that means God has breasts in like a baby, and you you ne it never runs dry. Right. If you're right. Israel, a a mountain refuge or breasts that never run dry. That's one of God's proper names. Is any one of those images Almighty? No. No, <laughs> but it gets translated, and then all right. the prayers that are where they're quoting the scriptures in Catholic liturgies have Almighty as the most popular name, and it's true if you're Methodist today, or if you're Presbyterian, or if you're in the Episcopal Church, Almighty still is the most popular name in every denomination's prayer books. I they have prayer books, so you know. Right, um, right. But even if you don't, people all assume that means the Bible says God's omnipotent all the time. But if you just go through your prayers, and when you see Almighty, you go, No, I'm a biblical christian and i'm going to put the actual name for god in hebrew in it and so i've come up with the, the shifty when you see it mark it out and put the holy tetons 
So it's like a mix of mountain ranges and breasts. And if you there just you put in Holy Tetons in your prayer book, all of a sudden you can be more open and relational and you like, maybe we are process and it, it, it's, but you see how there's a legacy and you say, totally. um, what was Jerome translating it for? He was translating the one official translation of the Bible for the Catholic church after it became dominant, the dominant religion of Rome. They mm. want one, the scripture speaking one voice to have one interpretation. And what do they do? They take well-breasted one mountain refuge and go, God's proper name is almighty. Right. And right. I'm just saying, I bet we'd have a lot less purity issues if every female grew up thinking their primary responsibility when they see their breasts isn't covering it up because we can't expect men to control themselves. But I think that, that breasts are something that preserve life. And, and that is an image. God said, I, you get to call me the mm. well-breasted one. Why? Because when you see a mother nursing their baby, or if you're seeking to escape death and find a cave, that is who, what I want you to call me. Very right. different. It's just a different right. world, but it's right. not like it's unbiblical. It's like, like I joked uh, earlier, the church let Caesar's lawyers edit our theology. And mm. all of a sudden we see almighty everywhere. But if you want to go how it got there, it wasn't because Jesus, Paul or <laughs> Jeremiah did it. It's because, you know, the translation team for the empire was like, well, let's see here. Right. <laughs> I mean, do you want to ask a celibate guy? Right. He's like, why well, not? I'm not picking. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you, you bring up. It's going to lead a monk to stumble. I don't want to. <laughs> for sake of our time and our conversation, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole in particular, but I think you bring up a great point. Friends, hello. Wait. This is Tim in real time. I am cutting in on my terrible MacBook Pro microphone um, to let you know that this is the audio that Trip gave me. It cuts off right there in mid-thought. I think that's his way of clickbaiting you into going to Homebrewed Christianity's podcast to listen to the rest of the conversation. So that's all I got. Blame Trip for all this. It's Trip's fault. He's the one who recorded it. I have no control over what he sent me. So send him a message telling him, Boo-hoo on him. All right. Talk to you all later.